Welcome to Behavior Grooves, the podcast that explores our human condition. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. And we talk with researchers and other interesting people to unlock the mysteries of our behavior by using a behavioral science lens. And today we're going to be talking about how hey, to wait, write wait, better. Kurt, and... Kurt, wait, wait, hold on. Let's slow down, Pat. Oh, why are what? you talking so fast? Because we're going to be talking about writing for busy readers. <laughs> and I thought, hey, we have okay, busy okay, listeners as well. No. So we need to talk about this. Oh, really okay, 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 okay. But talking fast isn't what's going to help us. No? No, well, it's not? Just slow down and talk normally. That way they'll be able to understand you as well as be, you know, it's about being understood, right? And anyway, most groovers are going to be on their treadmill listening at 1.5 times regular speed anyway. So, so. Uh, okay, so, so what you're saying is that we don't need to speed things up for our busy listeners. We just need to be better communicators. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And by the way, this episode is about writing for busy readers, not so much speeding up, you know, listening for busy <laughs> listeners. So it's I think it's a really different topic. <laughs> okay, yes, I, I, I'd agree with that. And as much as it pains me to say, I guess you're right. I just won't talk so fast. I know that's well, it's, it's hard for me sometimes to admit that you're right, but you are. You're right. Well, it happens every 10 years, so you, you, <laughs> can, you can relax me every that. time, And it pains <laughs> me every time. All right. So our guest today is Todd Rogers, who is a professor of public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Todd is also a behavioral scientist who studies how to better communicate with families, students, consumers, employees, and voters. Along with Jessica Lasky-Fink, Todd wrote a very practical and insightful book, writing for busy readers, communicate more effectively in the real world. Now, we know that Groovers will definitely like this book as it provides not just great research, but some very practical tips on how to be a better reader for the real world. It might be one of our top 10 books for the that we actually read this year. So just definitely want to encourage people to check it out. Yeah, I definitely think it might make that list. Um, I think one of the key things that I took out of this, and Todd talks about this, is that how we've been taught uh, how to write as a writer from a very young age about thinking about proper grammar and structure, setting up the situation and laying the groundwork for telling a narrative. But that way of writing might not be the best method for writing in today's world and writing for busy readers. Yeah, our conversation with Todd focused on what we need to think about when it comes to writing, particularly in business and social media formats. And the focus is on others, not us. So just as Kurt said, it's not about how we structure things for us. It's how we structure them for the reader. And he reminds us that everyone skims. Everyone skims. Newsflash. And you have a very limited time and attention span to connect with your reader. So focus on them, not ourselves. It was a fantastic discussion that jumps from reading habits to principles for effective communication to clearing distractions away and making maps for reading navigation. Maps? Mm -hmm. Maps? Maps? Yeah, they're gonna. You're just gonna have to listen to find out more about those maps. Okay, and we invite listeners to check out next week's episode with Gloria Mark because her research and her book called Attention Span focuses on how to live in a world with a limited attention span of a human being, and it's gonna be a really nice tie-in to our conversation with Todd. It is a really nice tie-in, so really encourage everybody to uh, subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode. And with that. We invite you to slow down a bit, grab your favorite book of good, clear, and easy-to-read writing, or a notepad where you can write all those good things in, and listen to our conversation with Todd Rogers. Todd Rogers, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. It is terrific to have you here. And uh, you're just taking a sip of something. Uh, do you prefer coffee or tea? Tea. <laughs> love it. Love it. Two two drinkers in one day, Kurt. This is you get well. This is this you is are good you on, are a tea drinker, I Tim. Am. So you yeah. always always gravitate now. So you just made a friend there, there, Todd. You made it. Made a friend just by your by your drink of choice. Even more tea. You may have seen I stuck something in my mouth. 
tea with dark chocolate. And so Ooh. it just, it makes the dark chocolate come to life. It doesn't taste like the chalk it sometimes tastes like. It just flourishes. <laughs> All right, so that <laughs> listeners, we we I mean, we could quit the the podcast right now because you just learned a really important lesson in life: right? tea That's and it. dark chocolate combined makes both better. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Find your Time. groove with tea yeah, and yeah, dark chocolate. Yeah. I like it. There we go. We we found that the title for the the podcast as well. All right. Um, Second speed round question, and and as you haven't noticed, these are not really speedy questions. We typically kind of meander around them so dinner with your favorite writer or your favorite musician i'm thinking because i'm afraid that i'm then gonna have to say who my favorite writer is uh, uh well, and and you know uh i don't know i mean beyonce would be awesome to have dinner with but uh <laughs> yeah yeah we'll <laughs> we'll say musician i don't know we'll say musician. <laughs> <laughs> i i like i i'm 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 thinking I'm like picturing your brain process going on there where it's like, oh, I want to say writer, but I'd have to choose. So Beyonce is easy, right? Is sure. That- yes. <laughs> we didn't think that would be a tough question. No. All right. Yeah, and but, and I don't right. think that, that I've ever seen anyone maybe sort of take the easy way out and say, well, I'm just going to sort of because I can't really think of any of this category i'm going to go with this other category well you guys are behavioral scientists right like the the, you have a in one category an easy choice and then in the other category a conflicted choice and i you know i am both a cognitive miser and present biased and so (laughs) let's go (laughs) framed beautifully boom okay all righty so this should be an easy one is it true that everyone skims Thank you for calling me out on that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, at some point, but everyone is not skimming everything in every moment. See, for example, the last thing you actually read closely. Everyone does all three. There's three kinds of reading. There's close reading, which is the way we were taught to read, word to word to word to period to word. And we're capable of that. There's skimming, which is jumping around, but usually linearly right? Like uh, left to right, then down, left to right. Sometimes we regress, but we're just trying to go as fast as possible and still get the essence. But then there's scanning, which was my favorite part in writing this book with Jessica, was how learning about the vision tracking stuff, where we look at how, how scanning works, where people dart around for the signposts, headings, pictures, bolded words. And they use it, and the metaphor we use is as a map. Like they use all three that you, you orient and you scan and then you skim to whatever. And you're like, I really care about this topic. And then you read closely, but then you pop back out and you skim again. So yes, everyone skims, but not all the time. Uh, I think I might skim all the time. But no, that, that's a, that's no. a self kind of a fault on my own. All right, last last speed round question, Todd. Sentences, you, you, you mentioned in the book, sentences are getting shorter. Does that mean that we're just getting less intelligent? Or we're becoming better writers. Ooh. <laughs> ah, there we go. Sweet. So, I, I mean, what, what we know is what the equilibrium is, is that the production of sentences is that looking at newspapers over time, looking at novels over time, nonfiction over time, sentences on average have been like pretty steadily and almost in a linear way. Presidential inaugurations is the example we use in the book. It's amazing. The George Washington, like I started to read that and I'm like going, I don't understand (laughs) what his first sentence even meant. Yeah. That was crazy. Yeah. It's like, what is it, 37 words? And that and the average sentence length is something like that. And then I don't can we do we use Biden or Trump? But but they both had average sentence length of like six words. And it wasn't just that we're cherry picking. It's like a linear straight line. Yeah. So, there, so we know is the equilibrium is that words are getting, uh, sentences are getting shorter. Why? It could be because on the demand side or the supply side, you, uh, it's a combination of both. On the demand side, people probably are more likely, to, well, we have evidence that people are more likely to read and more people are capable of reading short sentences. And on the supply side, you can see it's a pretty sensible reaction to write the way people want to be, want to read. Well, speaking of this historical uh, slope, I, you know, I, I was fascinated by the by the the trivial tidbit that you bring up that spaces didn't even exist between words until the seventh century. So we've we've been writing for a long time before we get to the seventh century. There'd been a lot of written word 
and there wasn't even a break between the words. There was no, <laughs> how do we communicate? Oh my God. It's incredible. So one, I, I can't remember if we kept the forced joke that we salute the Irish scribes in there. I, I, I'm kind of embarrassed in retrospect. Sometimes we, I thought we were being funny, but I, in retrospect, I feel like we were, what we were doing was really expressing gratitude too, that words, like basically letters would run continuously. And the belief is, and there's a book called The Silent Reading Revolution, where the, no one's really sure, but the belief is that reading basically only ever happened out loud until very recently, in the last few hundreds, uh, you know, maybe 500 years. And that when you're reading out loud, you're reading slower. And there wasn't as much need to use formatting and spacing to orient where you are. Uh, and it's always for an audience. And so all of these formatting innovations, a lot of innovations, like a paragraph represents a completed idea, a new paragraph, a sentence is an idea, commas, and when a parenthetical opens and closes, all of these are to make reading easier, that that was all in the service of, or at least eventually led to people reading silently. And you can see, I mean, we, we talk about the printing press, but you can also imagine, in addition to the printing press, that how we read, if we didn't read to ourselves, it was only a social performative act, which is a totally different thing. Uh, and so there, there's a lot of scholarship on this. We don't get into it. All we show is that it's, it turns out it's a lot easier to read when there are spaces than when there are not. And we illustrate that, which it doesn't take much imagination to see that that's obvious. And, and the Irish scribes are like, this was the how the Irish saved civilization by transcribing a lot of this stuff. Is that is that the reference? I, I don't, I don't, I don't know if that's the setup to a joke or something, but no, I, no. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 all I know is that, uh, in the seventh century, they, they trace it back to this, these Irish monks. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and at the time it's like, that's bizarre. It's kind of like, you know, when you and I were emailing and I included emojis, uh, it, it, you know, people will look back and be like, there's this guy, Todd, who in very professional communications broke the norm and started communicating only in hieroglyphic emojis. Yeah. What the hell? <laughs> Why did you understand that? That was really clear. Yeah, <laughs> okay. So we are having the pleasure today of focusing our attention on your new book called Writing for Busy Readers and that you co-authored with Jessica Lasky-Fink. Todd, we just want to know what it's like to write a 242-page book called Writing for Busy Readers. Just we caught the irony in that. Just to, you know. <laughs> yes, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna make it even easier for your listeners, our listeners now, to get the joke in that, which is one of the principles out of six is less is more, <laughs> and so we thought the best way to write to tell people that they should write less is to write a 242 page book about it. Bingo. Yes. <laughs> nice. Uh, I, so the, the book is one part of the project and the project has a mission of, we want everyone who writes anything, whether it's forms or websites or emails or texts or reports or assessments or evaluations, anything. And we're all writers. Anyone who writes anything to have a round of edit where they ask themselves, how do I make it easier for the reader? It's more effective and it's kinder. And we marshal dozens of experiments we've conducted and dozens other people have conducted to make, to make the case for how much more effective it is. And so the book is, I would say the intellectual hub, but the project is the project. The goal is the goal. The goal is we want everyone who writes anything to ask themselves, how do, I make it, how do I make it easier for the reader? And so, yes, this is a book needs to look like a book. And, yeah. and a one pager of a book would displease Penguin Random House and would, <laughs> all, and, would all, and would also surprise the reader. So in this case, the book looks like a book. The one pager looks like a one pager. The AI tool that we trained GPT-4 on these principles and tuned it for email, it looks like you would expect. You, you paste an email and it shoots out what it would look like if it was written to be easily skimmed. So in, in that, you, you talk about having this goal of, of having everybody kind of think about this from a different perspective. What do you find today? Are we doing that okay? Are we doing it horribly? Where are we generally? And I know it's going to range, obviously, but you know, it, from your research or anything, can you, do you have a kind of 
where are we on that continuum? Yeah, we are taught how to read in school, word to word to word, pause in a period, move on. We are taught to write for people who read like we were taught how to read, which is mm. people who are carefully reading it. And often that is prose and paragraphs and arguments, but we're not, that's, uh, we call that writing well. We're taught how to write well. Yeah. We're not really taught how to write effectively for busy people who are skimming. And per our earlier co uh, topic, everyone is skimming some of the time and probably a lot more than we think. And yeah. so it's just a different way of writing. And it's, it's a different approach to writing. Our, uh, we're talking with organizations that are the hubs of professional development for teachers of English. And we're trying to get it into English curriculums in high school and college. Yeah. We're, we're, we're talking with federal agencies about training the people who write grant requests to make it more accessible. But the idea is we are taught how to read and write in a certain way. And it just turns out that practical writing, that's not the optimal way to write. It's just not as effective. So in, in the book, you talked about this already. You said you have uh, it's broken into a number of principles and underneath those principles, you have different rules. And so I'm going to ask you the, the horrible question that is always like, you know, what's your favorite child? Right. So <laughs> do you have a favorite principle and do you have a favorite rule or one? Maybe not favorite is probably the wrong way. Do, do you have one that you think is particularly important for, you know, the listeners of this show to take into consideration? I love all, my, all the principles equally. <laughs> love that. And uh, end of, very, end of podcast. very good fatherly uh, <laughs> of writing the book, fatherly yes. of your principles. You but the, if I had to choose and I could only put one in the lifeboat, I will take two. The first okay. Okay. is less is more. And the reason I want a second is because I think it's too easy to simplify and misunderstand the essence of what we're saying to, to think less is more is the thing itself. Let, fewer words. We have all these experiments where if you ask people to cut the words in half, dramatically increase people's likelihood of responding. So we did one with a, a big federal political party with 700,000 donors, arbitrarily deleted every other paragraph so it didn't even make sense anymore. And then ran an experiment with hundreds of thousands of people in each condition. The one that was incoherent, but half as long was raised more money. Similarly, <laughs> we've, we've done this with, with emails where we're getting, you know, we're getting elected officials to respond to a survey, deleting all the, the all the middle explanatory paragraph. Uh, people think the longer one is going to be more effective, doubles response rates. Uh, we've done it with text messages where you remove a th one out of three sentences and it increases response rates. Like, and, and it's one, less is more effective. Two, people don't really predict it because we have a really hard time taking other people's perspective. And so that's fewer words like Strunk and White who wrote Elements of Style would say omit needless words. Easy. Cutting ideas is the harder thing for people, which is mm -hmm. just the more you add, the less likely someone is to read and respond. So that's one of them. I, I, I love that because to that point, it's kind of counterintuitive uh, what you're talking about. All of the, the the response rate goes up when you're going, but I need to explain this more to them. I need to tell them why they need to respond to this when what you're saying is even when it's incoherent, just the fact that it's half as long increases that response rate. Yeah, I, I just before this came from teaching a group of government leaders and we did an exercise where they found an email they had sent in the last month and then rewrote it according to the principles. And it's so fun and hilarious when they realize that it is not, it is not just a matter of taste and style. They are, it is more effective and kinder if they write in this different way. And in this case, we're talking just about the first one, which is fewer words. And you see them go from six paragraphs explaining why we need you to make a decision to the final, where the final paragraph is, and what do you think, to starting with, I need you to make a decision. I'm about to give you four, cent, four bullet points of explanation. Please get back to me by Tuesday. <laughs> yes. and, and it works. It's incredible. I mean, and, and it's not like it's not magic, 
like, like, whereas some behavioral science are like, that's incredible. I never would have expected that. This is really like, that's so obvious. I can't believe that some of like my kids are like, I can't believe you would spend your time on that dad. Yeah. But, but it's interesting because one of the other rules that you write is about making fewer requests. You said cutting out ideas, but you're going, well, isn't it effective for me to put multiple requests in a single email? I should ask you three things because then it's all in one as opposed to sending three separate emails or different pieces. But again, the research shows not as effective. No, I mean, in our family of behavioral scientists, the magazine, The Behavioral Scientist ran an experiment, which is great, where they asked people on the email list to do two things or to do one thing. And when they add the second thing, they crowd out doing the first thing, yeah. which is like, not like, again, dad, that's so obvious. <laughs> yes. But like, but what it leads to is you've got to prioritize. Like again, uh, all of these, uh, everything is obvious in retrospect. If one of the items you're asking people to do is more important than all the others, ditch the rest, pocket them until you get a response. I do this now, which is like really hard because I want you to respond to all three things that I'm asking you about. But if, but, but the danger is you'll divert them to the easy one. You'll divert them to a lower priority one, or you'll deter them in the first place from engaging with any of it until I have more time, which is never. Uh, you know, I think we became aware of, or, or I, I felt like I became more sensitive to the less is more um, after we had Lighty Klotz on with his book, Subtract, where you, you, clearly the, the whole less is more story comes out big in the world. Okay. So how does this contrast with Cal Newport's deep work? thesis. I, I love that. I'm, Jessica and I, while we were writing this book, I was almost defensively writing in the first draft, responding to this question. Those of you who read the book, and I just want to clear the record, 242 pages includes the footnotes and includes the <laughs> FAQ and includes a I'm bunch gonna, of other- I'm like, going to fact check you on it. I've, I've got my paper copy right here. Oh, it okay. is. It's true. Okay. It's yep. very there. Yep. It's right it there. It includes correct. the yep. index. So I, you're, you're you know, there. I want the readers to know that, you know, it's well-structured, so it's easy to skim and easy to navigate. So if you're interested in one of the principles, which I will happily tell you my the second baby I love the most uh, later, but you can find <laughs> it in the, in the index. Okay. But so Cal Newport's basic approach is we are, our minds are distracted. Our time is broken up. It prevents us from doing the thing that the human mind is best at, potentially is even made for, but that is focused work. And spending 20 minutes for three days on one thing, 20 minutes each day, is worse than spending one continuous hour on it. And it's just that, that, that clearing all the distractions, very few of us even have the experience of that because we just, everything's, the, the email pops up. And so Cal Newport makes a really compelling case and I, it's, it's kind of, it's inspiring that like, well, our minds, we should give our minds a chance to have the quiet focus that happens when we clear ourselves out. Meanwhile, Jessica and I are saying, hey, we are getting bombarded. Your readers are getting bombarded. They're busy, they're skimming, they're trying to move on to the next thing. Their goal when they read what you write is to move on to the next thing, even if they don't understand what you're talking about. And I think that they're actually, they're, I've expected people to be a little, well, aren't you just submitting to our culture of distraction and busyness? Yeah. And our orientation is our goal is to help writers achieve their goals. And when they know what their goal is with regards to what they want the reader to understand and what they want the reader to do, how do we help them achieve that? In the process, it's also kinder to the reader. And so it, that's, it's kinder because it saves you time. If I was going to send Tim, if I was going to send you a message, takes three or four minutes to read, I could have just wrote it in a way that you could get deal with it in one minute. I saved you three minutes of time. And so the way we think about it is writing effectively for busy readers is more effective for the writer achieving their goals, but also saves the reader's time is more respectful to them so they can actually do the things that they flourish in and that they thrive in and they find fulfilling. And so in a way, it's trying to clear the road for people to do the things with their minds and time that they would like to do because we inadvertently, unintentionally burden them with unnecessary taxes on their time in the way that we write to them. So you're giving people time back though they can have those times to have that deep focus as opposed to 20 minute increments now we can hopefully get 40 60 
70. And as Gloria Mark would say, maybe not more than 90 because we just can't hold focus longer than that anyway. So, but that's what I'm hearing you say. The kinder part of being a good writer is being kind for that reader. It, it really is. I don't want to be too grand and spiritual about it, but it is, <laughs> but it is a, it's a, it's a gift. You, you, let's say we work together and you have to read what I write. And you have to process it and you have to respond. I am by not structuring what I write so it's easy for you to process and make sense of and respond to. I am basically shifting the time burden from me to you. I'm saying the time it would have taken for me to make this easy for you, I'm instead going to make it shift it to you. So you have to spend that time trying to figure out what I'm doing. (laughs) All right. A second lifeboat showed up. So you get to, to <laughs> save a second principle. Which one would that be? Thank God. I, I, I hope there, I didn't know that that was a possibility. I would like four more to show up. But, <laughs> so uh, we cover all six. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. But I will take, uh, the next one is design for navigation, which is that even if we can't cut what we're doing and we can't change the way we're writing it and we can't change the formatting and we can't make the action easier and, we, and, and so on, What we can do is we can make it easy for a scanner to jump around and navigate. And we have lots of these experiments, happy to tell the story of some of them, but basically adding headings. If you, we worked with an organization that has 50,000 members, they send monthly or weekly reports to them. And there was six paragraphs. Adding a heading every two paragraphs, more than double the likelihood that the members would use and respond to anything below the second paragraph. And you can understand, they're busy, they're skimming, there's no orientation. Basically designed for navigation because then you make it easy for people to just find what they're looking for. Jessica and I worked with a school district where they were redesigning their pandemic communications. Some of it was, what's the definition of a close contact? Some of it is, what is the school doing? Some of it is, how do I get tested? All in a continuous prose when different parents have different needs, you want to make it easy for them to navigate and jump around. So the second principle that I that I would throw into, I would drag onto my lifeboat is design for navigation <laughs> because you just want to make it easy for skimmers to find what they want and, and make it clear what your goal is. Well, I want to pull a raft up alongside that lifeboat because uh, I, I, I would love for you to tell the uh, the tappers versus listeners study that, that comes out of the uh, tell readers why they should care uh, chap- chapter, because it's one of our favorites. It's absolutely one of our favorites. And I don't know how, how many of our listeners are actually familiar with it. Now, uh, we're going to do it. I've never oh, done this. Oh, we're no. going to do it. Okay. Oh, no. We're going to do a live experiment right uh, here yes. on Behavioral Grooves. All yeah, right. let me. So I am going to tap out a song uh, and a song that you, I expect you to know. Is it a Beyonce song? I'm specifically not going to be, it's just, uh, <laughs> but, but it could be a popular song. I got to make sure I, I, how am I going to make sure it's a song, you know? Okay. But I'm going to do it anyway. I, okay. And so I want you to, I'm going to tap it. And then I want you to see if you can tell me what song it is. Well, there was, uh, there, there was a specific song used in the study. Yeah, but I don't want to do that. You know, because you guys already know it. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. Okay, fine. I'll do it. Tim, right, here Tim we go. knows all, he's yeah. a he's a plethora no, but, of music. No, but that's so but that's why this, this is so fantastic because exactly. it, it's gonna it's gonna gonna even I might know a lot of music, but I'm gonna get confused. Yeah, we'll go. All right, here we go. Yeah. Here we go. Yeah. Okay, what song? There's no way you don't know this song. Yeah, I, I'm sure that we know the song, but <laughs> by the tapping, I have no idea. Born to Run. I don't know. Uh, Born to Run? No, I don't know. That wasn't even close to Born to Run. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I Don't even give us a hint. Don't, Todd, don't even give us a hint. There's Just, no way you're going to get there. There's no, no <laughs> it's, it's impossible. It's impossible. All right, so should I do it? Okay, it was uh, yeah. Teardrops on My Guitar by uh, by the Taylor Swift. Yeah, of course. The only <laughs> of course. Gonna teardrops yeah. on my guitar. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so the, so the, the study where you're describing uh, is about perspective taking and overconfidence in perspective taking, which is 
this, uh, the study goes where they ask people to come in and tap out happy birthday to you, yep. Star Spangled Banner, or teardrops on my guitar. And then they have other people listen to it. And they ask the tapper, what do you think the chances are that the listener is going to know the song you're, you're tapping? And almost invariably, it's like 90%. How can you not know? And I go, yeah. 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 Uh, how can they not know? And so they say almost everybody. And then the tap, the listeners are like, you guys, I have no, I think it might, honestly, I think it, the, the, it might've been 3% was with, able to with, detect. With, and happy birthday to you does pretty well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and so I, when we say emph emphasize what you think the reader might care about, it really requires per working at perspective taking, which is trying yeah. to understand what the reader might actually value most. And it's a little more subtle than it sounds, which is, okay, so that, that study shows we're bad at it. Nonetheless, we've got to try. And the reason, the, re the, the, the nuance of the way we describe it, again, dad, isn't that obvious? Uh, <laughs> is, that, is that for us, the point is to help read writers achieve their goals. And from a superficial perspective, we want to make sure the writer's goal is the center. And that means the writer achieves their goal. Then within the content the writer is willing to include, what of that are we elevating as the thing the reader might care about? So I don't, we are specifically like, you don't have to change your goal. Your goal is your goal. And even if it's the most boring thing in the universe that nobody cares about, there's some element of it that in rank order, there's the least boring thing in the universe in your, in your universe of ideas. And so what we want to say is just, you have your content and towards the end, it's like, okay, of this, what do we think the reader might care most about? It's different than a lot of like the way we think about persuasion and stuff like this, where you actually might enhance it. You might tell more of a story. You might bring things in that other people might care about. Here, in practical writing, people are going to give up before your story ends and move on. And so here we're saying, given the constraints of the things you're willing to say, elevate the part that you think the reader might care best about, even though you're probably not going to be awesome at estimating what that is. Well, and I think that's the real tricky part, because as you just showed, the the tappers thinking, well, of course they'll get this. So as an author, as the writer, you're going, well, this is the most important part for the, my listener or my reader, but that isn't always the case. So any any hints on how we can overcome that bias that we already have, or is it just, no, we just got to be thinking about this and and try? I started doing a bunch of, uh, we're, we're turning this into a uh, an online course for this organization called Versity, and I'm doing it with a, a comedian named Alana Glazer. She did Broad City, and, and she and I have been talking about this stuff, and she, I didn't, Jessica and I didn't even think to talk about this in the book, but she's really big on, for high stakes communications, you, you get somebody else. Uh, an outsider, huh? which we all do. I just hadn't even thought about like the social part of writing. Now, my practical writing of like, what time should we meet for dinner? Still yeah. should be short, direct, clear, skimmable. Probably don't need my wife to review it before I send it. But high stakes communications, it actually, uh, an outsider may be a good, a good tool. And, and Alana's kind of like very big in this. She tells a story about Broad City, her, her, her comedy a very successful comedy show. Big break was Amy Poehler showing up and becoming an actor in it and then becoming the producer. And the first email they sent to Amy Poehler, they labored over and showed to everybody in their family and friends. And it ended up being just four sentences. But it was that because they were trying to reach out. We love you. We adore you. You're the greatest. You're a hero. And the seven sentences they wrote about how much they love her turned into you know half of the first sentence because- it's an established yeah. fact. Amy Poehler is amazing. I, she just needs to know you acknowledge it. You don't need to convince her. <laughs> I, I love, I love how that is a a component again to that point of we all know we should do it on those important pieces, but it feels like oh, that's so much extra work and various different pieces. But going back to your premise of being kind to the reader, but not only that, but being more effective. Hey, take that extra time, do that extra step in order to make sure that that happens. And I, I just, I, I think we all can probably take that uh, to heart. 
as we move forward with it. So, yeah. I love that. I, there's another layer to it, which is more effective. It's kinder. It's also more accessible and inclusive. The median U.S. adult, which you may remember from the book, reads at a ninth grade reading level, which means this sentence is probably difficult to read for the median U.S. adult. And that's not, I mean, it is what it is. 20% of U.S. adults read at a fifth grade reading level. So if we are trying to write to a public, the easier we make it to read, the more people for whom it will be accessible. And then for those who are capable of reading it, it's just cognitively taxing and they're more likely to quit if it's hard to read. And so it's kinder, more effective, and more inclusive. You, you brought up in the book too, and, and forgive me if I, I mistake this, um, but it was about the government actually mandating that some of the the federal government in the the level of was back down to fourth or fifth grade. I can't remember exactly what it was, but uh, again, reading and doing that to be inclusive so that everybody was brought into what was being um you know, uh, written by the, the the federal government. And, and forgive me if I got that all mixed up. But You got it exactly right. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's the Plain Writing Act of 2010. And the, the, the goal was all federal communications should be written plainly. I actually think, and Jessica and I have been talking about this and talking with a bunch of federal agencies about this, where we think, in a way, this book is a clarification of what does it mean to write plainly? And, mm -hmm. and so we hope that this becomes part of a, the state and local and federal government way of thinking about, okay, yes, obviously we want to write plainly and the science is advanced. Like yeah. what, how, and, and, and what's important, it's not overly specific. It depends a ton on your context. There is not mm -hmm. a single right answer to how to write this form. You know, your, you, your, what are the expectations? What are the norms? Who's the audience? What are, what, how have you communicated with them in the past? All these other things sort of weigh into it, but that said, no matter what it is you're writing, it can be written so it's easier. So you should add a round of editing, just make it easier for the reader. Yeah, my question around this, when I was reading about the Plain Writing Act, what the hell took so long? <laughs> like 2010? That's when the government finally gets around to saying, no, let's not throw up a bunch of gibberish at our, well, at our citizenry. Read, you read George Washington's inaugural well, yeah. opening, right? I mean, they, it was, they come on. I thought that we've come a long way since then. I mean, look, it was only 1,300 years ago that they inserted spaces in, <laughs> in between words. Okay, okay. Uh, I, <laughs> yeah, I also, yes, the Plain Writing Act, why it took so long, it's been a global movement since the 90s, so the U.S. might have been late to adopt it. But it's also, there's a lot of times when it feels like it's a question of taste and style. And mm -hmm. that's why the evidence needs to mount and has been mounting. Yeah. That yeah. it's not really about preference. It can be, but it's not, it's motivated. We are motivated not because we have a artistic preference. We are right. motivated because it is more effective in achieving our goals as writers. And in the process, it's also pretty nice externality that it's kinder to readers. Yeah. All right. So, Todd, um, so the the work I do in my day job, I have a company that is a uh, behavioral change and communication agency. We do a lot of communication work inside of organizations. And I think I'm going to give I'm going to gift your book to every one of my clients <laughs> because I run into this issue all of the time is that when we're working with them here, here's the scenario. Right. We have all of this information that needs that that the the my client believes needs to be conveyed to the employees of the organization and we're telling them no we have to we we can we will give it to them but uh you can't just just send it all out in a 30 page document because nobody's going to read it and the objective that you're trying to do how do i go about outside of giving them your book how do i go about getting them to realize less is more First, I think you have it exactly right because perfect for Christmas and for holidays and birthdays and graduations, anniversaries, even just congratulations on completing a podcast. Order this now. book. This book, yeah, yeah, available available now while supplies last. Uh, <laughs> writing for busy readers by Todd Rogers yes. and Jessica Lasky Fink. Um, I'm going to take a, a step back and this yeah. is a, pr we flirted with this framing throughout the book 
And I'm moving more towards thinking this is the central framing of all this work, which, and I think that it may itself be a compelling way of, in, of getting people to accept this approach. It starts with Don Norman, who wrote The Design of Everyday Things, user-centered design, the, the whole field's orientation starts with if, a, if an object that you design is interacted with and then given up because people can't figure out how it works, even if the instruction manual is clear and you can teach people how to use it, it's always the designer's fault. It's mm -hmm. never the user's fault. That's kind of, it started as radical then. Now I think it's just internalized. That's what design is. We're saying, and this kind of, I think this is a pretty radical approach. We're saying with regards to writing, if you write something to somebody, they give up on it, they skip over it, they look at it, it's too much, and they don't pull anything away. Often we'll say, well, it was all in there, that was on you. The radical take is, it's always the writer's fault. It is always our fault if someone looks at what we send or what we write and moves on without pulling out what we think is the most important information. And that, that like completely shifting responsibility to the only place that we have control over, which is how we write. And so rather than saying that it's all in there and the reader's got to do what the reader's got to do, the fact is, and we are declaring it now, we are screaming it on this podcast and everywhere we can. Everyone is skimming, maybe not all the time, but everyone is skimming. And that means we need to write in a way that accommodates the way they read. It's always on us as the writer, never on the reader. And so I, I, that's the frame. And I think that's the big frame for, and it's pretty radical because normally yeah. we'd say, well, it was all in there. You should have gotten it. And, and I, to that point, I think there is a big piece of that that we can take into organizations and uh, just our everyday kind of writing that we do is that it is beholden on us. It is it is our obligation as opposed to the reader's obligation, even when uh, that message is coming from the CEO and everybody should sit down and read the three paragraph, you know, however many word long thing and fully understand it. If we know that's not going to happen, then we need to we need to adjust for that. So I wanted to jump back to the social media stuff because you talked about context. You talked about how context changed, but the principles are really principles, I, which I loved about about the book uh, and that they're very broadly applicable. But most of us live in a world where there is some social media reading, if not some social media writing. And are there some tips around how to be a good social media writer? Are there certain things that you feel like are more prominent when it comes to thinking about social media posting? I think the evidence on this, specifically in social media, is less established. And also, I think it's an evolving set of norms and expectations. That said, that's why we we think about the principles as a level one level up from the concrete implementation. One thing that's true is everyone is busy and everyone's goal is to move on as quickly as possible. And you your writing begins with what is your goal? What is it you want to achieve? And so there is research that the simpler the language in social media, the more likely it is to go viral, meaning the you just replace unfamiliar synonyms with more familiar synonyms. It's just more likely to be read and shared. It's less cognitively taxing, accessible to more. There are expectations and norms that are evolving in the same way that if I'm writing a 10-page report and people expect it to be 10-page, I can't make it one page. I don't think people expect your social media to be one sentence. They don't expect it to be maybe sometime, depending on the modality, the mode and all those other things. So I think you've got to, it's got to look like people expect. But I do think the goal part is particularly interesting. We did not include this in the book, but one of the five most retweeted tweets of all time was from Macaulay Culkin. And in the message, if his goal were simply to, well, what he writes is, want to feel old, question mark, space, next line, today's my 40th birthday, period. Mm. That's hilarious because we all know him as a seven-year-old. <laughs> and and so that that was the one of the five most retweeted tweets in the history of Twitter. And his goal was not to inform us that it was his 40th birthday. Because if it were, he should have just said, today I'm 40. His goal was to be amusing and funny. And it wasn't just conveying the efficient transfer of information. And so being clear on, on your goal helps to shape how you write. And in social media, the goals are a little more multifaceted. Yeah. 
Todd, I, I read somewhere, and I apologize, I don't remember where, uh, but in LinkedIn, in the post, there was a period, I don't know how many years ago, where people started to, instead of writing in paragraphs, uh, basically it was single sentences that, you know, would beforehand have been combined. And what they found is that those were shared more and conveyed more in different pieces. Does that align with just that this mapping idea that you talked about before? Or is it, I don't know if you have any insight on that or any, any um, thoughts. One of the things about bullet points that we end up spending some time talking about is bullet points can make it easier for skimmers Mm -hmm. to move on. There's a couple of things that they do. One is they imply a logic. They're all related to the whatever introduced it, the sentence that introduced the bullet points. The, yeah. And if you're not interested in this, whatever that topic is, you can skip all of them. So there's a, they, they, they let you create this hierarchical logic. Also, they can sometimes make it easier to skim, but it skim the content of the bullets because some, it's just, instead of a wall of words, it's just visually yeah. less offensive. But there also is something that is a little trick that I've started seeing people do that I think is really brilliant, which is if a, if a bullet point is kind of long, you know, let's say two sentences, you still have to skim all of it to figure out what that bullet point was about. It doesn't actually help you pull out what was in it. And so what people have started doing is adding very brief one, two, three word summary to begin the bullet point. Mm. Conference. Titling the bullet point almost. Right, yeah. which then licenses, it then helps people. You Just imagine the logic here. We have five bullet points. One is about scheduling, cost, appearances, whatever. And then there's two sentences in each bullet point. Uh, if I'm not interested in any of the planning, I can skip all of them. But if I am interested in some of it, I, I kind of have to go through, read all of it. But if I give you a little heading on what it's about, then I can say, oh, I can skip the that and that. And so it's another way, again, it's just another innovation on how do we make it easier for readers, help them move on because they're going to move on. And, and if they don't move on, you're burdening them. <laughs> so imagine we were moving on to a desert Island and, uh, alone, you have a year on a desert Island, Todd, and you've got the opportunity to take two musical artists with you, not, not the actual people, but their catalogs. You get the whole catalog, everything that they've ever written, recorded, all that kind of stuff. Which two artists would you take with you? You get to tap out the beats as you're <laughs> sitting there uh, to the songs. So I'm going to want them to have a, a deep library. Yeah. Because, yeah. see, that's a little hack. If I were just to choose a, you know, a Millie Vanilli, a one -hit I would wonder. just have three songs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and so are you going to go, are you going to, are you going to, are you novelty seeking? Are you going to go after a variety? I'm, I'm going for uh, variety. So uh, Beatles is going to have to be one, even though I wouldn't, I don't know that if you asked me for a favorite song that even I, any of theirs would be in the top 10, they're great, but they're not. Uh, and then I'm going to, I'm going to do a mashup <laughs> of contemporary, you know, this is, this is, this is, uh, this is Beyonce and Taylor Swift summer. So I'm going to, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to take, is, yeah. I'll go every other album between the two of them. Oh, that's kind of clever. <laughs> I like that. Okay. Oh, I like that mix up. There you go. Okay. Oh yeah. Fascinating. It, it, it is that summer. All right. Well, with that, Todd, we, um, thank you. This has been very fascinating. It is a absolutely lovely book. We have, I don't know, 50 more questions. So less is more on questions too. That's a, that's a lesson that uh, us as podcasters have to take because we didn't get nearly through all of them, but we thank you very much. Oh, it's super fun. Nice, nice chatting with you. And next time we'll get through the other 40 questions. <laughs> Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I share ideas on what we learned from our discussion with Todd, have a free-flowing conversation, and groove on whatever else comes into our very busy and distracted brains. There it is. That's there it is. That's the human condition, man. Yeah, it is a very uh, common aspect about how much we are taking in at this point. And I love this conversation with Todd because it fits with what I'm seeing, not just in the corporate world, but in social media with everything that we're doing. It just, it really matches up. And I think it's really important. And particularly with a lot of people 
who aren't necessarily that good at writing for a world where we're getting 34, you know, gigabytes of information presented to us every day, or, you know, we spend however much hours in front of a screen and we are, you know, learn more in a day than we learned in a year when we back in 1850s or whatever it is, you know? Well, those are, uh, let's, I want to get to the, the real world applications, but just give us, you, you did some research on this and you've got some really tasty bits here. So let's, let's, let's just hear some of the really wonderful things that you can use with your next trivial conversation. <laughs> the trivial pursuit thing. All right. So, so this is some research, you know, some of coming from the University of California, San Diego, basically where it says the average American consumes about 34 gigabytes of data and information every day. Ouch. Um, that translates into approximately about 100,000 words between radio, podcast, television, web, print. And that is based on data gathered in 2008, in 2023 oh. and beyond when this is going to be presented. I can only, only assume that that has gotten much, much worse. So, yes, we're busy. Yes. We are having all of this information presented at us, and we have to be able to not con not read everything in its full entirety because we would be bogged down. We wouldn't be able to actually operate given that. So give me an example from the real world of uh, a company that is needing to communicate with their employees, and they have a lot of important information but they're not doing it well <laughs> and we won't, and we won't name names. I was going to say, I can't name names. This is what we do. This is the work that, that so I will, I, I will do an interesting kind of analogy, not analogy. A, a mob, what is it when you combine things together? Like, Combination. No, well, I'm Agri like, I'm going to take a bunch of clients that I've worked with and I'm going to just match them all together and talking about this. And sounds in like of an a, amalgam. You're going to, that's, that's the word that I was looking at. Yes. So here's a common situation. I do, we do a lot of work, a lot, a lot of work. Vast majority of our work is around incentives and reward and recognition programs, part, mostly for salespeople. And I hear this not once, not twice, but multiple times over the course of the past 25 years is that we talk about how you need to improve your communication and people go, but this is important for people and they're really motivated to read it. So they will read whatever we send out. And I have to, you know, push back my gag reflex <laughs> and be a good corporate person and say, ah, maybe we need to rethink that assumption. This idea that just because it's how they get paid and it is important, and yes, they are motivated to read it. And yes, there is a more likelihood that they're going to read a communication about their incentive plan than say about the new HR policy on um, footwear or something yeah, along that yeah. line, right? But the assumption that they're not busy and they're not going to skim, as Todd talks about, that they're not going to be concerned about how it is structured so that they can easily understand the key concepts within it is just foolhardy. And yet we see it way too often. And not that every client that we work with does this. Many of them are actually coming to us because they realize they need to do a better job on this. But there are people within the, that organization, oftentimes high-ranking sales VPs, who are going, why do we have to spend money on this? Because this is something they should be. We're telling them how they get paid so that they get rewarded. And you're going, yes, you are. You have to do that well. Yeah. So you're, so you're saying that the format of the information makes a big difference in, in the readability and, the, and then the ability to understand and then the ability to actually execute on that. Well, it's what Todd talks about. It's this idea that when we have information that is being presented to us, we are very busy. Our attention span, as we'll talk with Gloria next week about, 
has been diminishing in our world from what it was 20, 40 years ago in the way that we the world operates. And so we've kind of grown accustomed to that. So if I don't present the information that is needed, if I particularly if I am trying to drive a particular behavior change within a segment of the employee population, and I want to do it by putting together an incentive plan that people need to understand first how that plan impacts them, but two, what they need to do differently in order to maximize that. I can't put that out in a 20 page Word document <laughs> that is no. 12, you know, time, Times New Roman font uh, that has, you know, 10 different tables in it with mathematical equations. As much as I would like to be able to think that I've hired really intelligent and smart people, which I have, sure, they just don't have the time or the wherewithal or the energy to be able to do that. So as Todd says, the responsibility is on the writer or it is on the organization. It is upon the incentive compensation team to be able to do that. It is on the HR director. It is on the manager who is leading his team and wants to get them to do something different. This is all about how they need to understand what is important, what are the goals, and then take all of the tips that, that Todd talked about and put them into play. You and I have done a lot of research on uh, with people, the subjects being the incentive users, the, the people who are in the field actually earning the incentives. Yes. And one of the most common troubles that they have is I didn't know that was in the plan. <laughs> I don't know how it works. I don't understand it. Yeah. And and the people who have designed these incentive plans are very thoughtful and they're very bright. Yes. And and it has more to do with the map than it has to do with the content itself. That they might write all the right things, but unless you lay it out in a way that is going to be understandable for the skimmers and the, and the scanners and the glancers and the I got a busy life people, then we're not going to effectively communicate with them. And I love the way Todd's book laid out these beautiful uh, visual examples when he had comparing on opposite pages the differences between here's here's all the raw content laid out in a good way, and then here's all the raw content laid out in a great way. And you go, yeah. wow, instantly gravitate toward just just let's focus on how to get better it, and, and what so going back to that research that we've done so there is the common thing i didn't know that was in there i didn't uh i don't know what this is what's even worse is when people misunderstand so in other <laughs> oh, words yes. they yeah. are assuming that the incentive plan is designed one way and in fact it isn't and oftentimes that's they're anchored in on a on a plan that was three years ago and they've made changes and those changes just haven't been called out so this idea of what you're just saying this mapping this idea of the the graphical design of your information is really important to call attention to these are the key concepts that we want you to do you know legally companies have to you know every year present an incentive plan and get people to sign off on it but they legally don't have to do that in a good way right i mean it can be a horrid <laughs> way right. and right. so but to do it in a good way so in other words i can put this change and it's in on page 5 of a 12 page document uh you know buried down in this paragraph about how we change these different things when instead what you need to do you need to highlight that here are the four key changes in 2024 around our incentive right. plan and right. oh by the way here's what that means and oh by the way, here's a graphical visualization for what that means for you. Yes. And I can look at that and I go, oh, got it, done. I And even if I don't read any of the detail, I know what I'm supposed to do or at least have that uh, general knowledge about what has changed. Yeah. I just wanted to say that my wife is a communication professional. Yes. She is responsible for the internal communication at a very large company. and. 
when we talked about Todd's book and she she glanced through it, she's like, you know, I don't really see anything here that's like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that, right? That a communication professional knows all of it. And then she followed that up with, and it's laid out in a beautiful way that I really get it. Like instantly, I can, I can understand. Even the book <laughs> itself is laid out beautifully. So like she was, she was taking it, she bought copies for her team. And, <laughs> and, you know, she was like, everybody well, needs to read this. I mean, that's what I taught, you know, when I talked to Todd, I go, I need to send this book to my clients. All your clients. Right. right? Exactly. I mean, that's, yeah. it's, it's so yeah. true because yeah. I, I think people, we all know communication is important. We all know that people are busy, but we don't always put those two together in a way that is really impactful and we understand that yes this is super important so all right mr hulahan is there anything else or are we are we uh should we oh, talk really I, fast and wrap this up <laughs> there are so many more things we could talk about it because it's a it's a great book and it's it's full of great tips i just want to encourage everybody to go out and read it yeah all right so let's wrap this this uh grooving session up Again, thank you, Todd. You are a fantastic guest. We hope to have you on again. And as Tim mentioned, everybody, please, if you have any type of writing that you have to do in a corporate or social or whatever situation, read this book. It's a really good book and it will help you. It has lots of different tools, uh, tips and hints. And uh, if you like it, you know, and you like this podcast, share, share us on your social media, share us on your, you know, write a nice, short, and brief, and yes. very effective yes. social exactly. media post that says "Behavioral Grooves" is one of the best podcasts you can ever listen to to get practical advice. Thinking about it from your your reader's perspective, yes. not your perspective, absolutely. And with that, Groovers, we hope that you take these wonderful messages from from Todd uh, and his and his co-author, and it helps you this week to go find your groove.